It used to be shocking, I think, to see how blatantly many have attempted to rewrite history. And I think it's still a little unsettling when we see it. Um, it has been the habit for some time now to recast, uh, recast famous characters according to an agenda that's really designed to change our culture by changing our history so that it conforms to their perceptions rather than records the past as it was at the time. They have over the decades made heroes into villains and villains into heroes. They have slandered, they've manipulated, and they have lied about all sorts of people, as well as the events that surround their lives. In an effort to make most historical figures as amoral, as self-absorbed, and as they prove to be themselves, devoid of any real redeeming character traits, especially in regards to faith. They want to recast them so that they'll be more like them than like what they were and what they professed to be. Time Magazine this November simply states that the story of Thanksgiving is a myth. And without any proof, it goes on from there. It featured uh, recently a sad and inaccurate article by a Native American that was written more out of personal angst than true historical perspective. And it grieved me to read it because if the reality were better understood, it might relieve for him and others some of the nagging issues that tend to divide us rather than unite us. There are exceptions, of course, to all of this, but in the main, this really is the record of the present handling of history for the last 75 years. I think that most of you are aware that the contemporary view of the first Thanksgiving has been morphed into something short of a pagan harvest festival held out of gratitude to the Native Americans. In fact, last year's presidential Thanksgiving proclamation stated emphatically, this American spirit of gratitude, referring to Thanksgiving, dates back to our earliest days, when the pilgrims celebrated a successful first harvest thanks to the generosity and support of the Wampanoag people. No mention of God, no acknowledgement of God at all, but it was just done to celebrate and give thanks to them for their help. If I were a Native American, I think I'd be more offended at this than anything the pilgrims actually said at the time. It tries to make the event more palatable to them by making it into something it wasn't. It's true that the pilgrims were grateful for their help, but the record shows very clearly that even their advice failed to save the harvest because of the prevailing drought at the time. It was prayer and fasting that brought relief. And for that reason, they wanted the Native Americans to share with them in the praise of God for his grace that provided them when all other help proved inadequate under the circumstances. They weren't thanking them because what they did for them didn't last. It didn't hold up during the drought. What they needed was rain. 
and the ring they sought from God, and the rain came from God. It's difficult at times to judge what's more pathetic. The blatant lies perpetrated by social engineers or, or the gullible minds that accept them because of really a laziness. Um, because they can't be bothered to concern themselves with the truth or, or to know what was really going on. This afternoon, we're going to sweep aside the frequently self-awarded and highly praised neo-historians who fabricate history out of their own imagination and who seem to never tire of telling us what the people of other times were really thinking and what the people of other times were really doing and what the people of other times really intended to say. And we're just going to go and look at what they said themselves instead of having them tell us what they meant to say, which uh, they loved to do. When Bradford, William Bradford, determined to write the Pilgrim story, which was really his story too, he started with what he called the very root and rise of the occasion and the inducements that led to the establishment of the Plymouth Plantation. Here's his intention. I'm writing this. I want you to understand, he says, what is the root and the rise of what happened here? And then he goes forward from there. What the governor sets out to do is to take us backwards to the very germ of the reason why, when he was writing, there was a successful, thriving colony of freedom-loving Christians in Massachusetts. So kind of think of it like rewinding a video, and now everything's going backwards to the beginning. As Bradford writes in his mind, the many houses of Plymouth are all taken down, the, the roofs stripped off, the walls disassembled, the logs go back to being trees again, the land becomes wild and overgrown. The seasons follow one another in succession until we come to those bitter winters shortly after their landing on that first weary December day. There are now just a few crude huts. Most of the people are gone. But the rewind continues, and those structures also come down. And a strange, things ha string, a strange thing happens. The shrinking population just for a moment swells again as those who were lost in those early years reappear for a moment in time. They then climb back aboard the Mayflower and they sail back to England. The Mayflower finally settles at anchor in England and the people disembark and the ship vanishes into the mists of history to carry rum and other supplies as it did before the pilgrims hired it. The pilgrims, or brownists, as they were called, returned to Holland. Remember, we're going backwards here. They returned to Holland and then back to England again. And their origin as a congregation is witnessed. But what you should understand is that this is not where Bradford wants to take us. He wants to go back even further. Remember what he's doing here. He's trying to help us to see what is the root and origin of what happened in Plymouth. 
He's taking us back all this way, all the way back to the beginning, before they were a congregation, and now he wants to take us back even further to take us to what was the root that gave rise to this matter. So back we go. All the way to the redawning of the gospel light at the Reformation. And Bradford says that those who are godly and who are judicious in their judgments will quickly recognize that since that time, since the time of the Reformation, Satan has been engaged in an all-out warfare and opposition against the truth of the gospel in England. The governor states that Satan battled the church in various ways. And this is, I think, in your notes. Sometimes by bloody death and cruel torments. Other occasions by imprisonments, banishments, and other hard usages. As being loath that his kingdom should go down, the truth prevail, and the churches of God revert to their ancient purity and recover their primitive order, liberty, and beauty. But as you and I know, and Bradford knew it too, that strategy of oppression and persecution didn't prevail. Instead, the blood of the martyrs watered the truth and it took root all over England and all over the British Isles. So Bradford continues. He says, Satan fell back on his ancient schemes, the ones he used in the Church of Christ under uh, the persecution of the emperors in the first century. And he says that they returned to that. That is, Satan returned to that usage. He then began to sow errors, heresies, and wonderful dissensions amongst the professors themselves. In other words, the first attack was from without, when it was clear that that attack from without was not going to extinguish the Reformation light, Satan then began to attack from within, working upon their pride and ambition with other corrupt passions common to all mortal men, yea, to the saints themselves in some measure, by which woeful effects followed as not only bitter contentions and heartburnings, but schisms with other horrible confusions. But Satan took occasion and advantage by thereby. So as in the ancient times, the persecutions by the heathen and their emperors was not greater than of Christians one against the other. As the Reformation, at the Reformation, the gospel brought light throughout the land of England bring villages and shires out of the darkness imposed on them by the superstition and ceremony of the Roman church. And when Satan couldn't extinguish that growing light by persecution, he sought to tempt the saints to put out their own light by bitter contentions among themselves. Bradford says, Satan then began another kind of war and went more closely to work, not only to pummel it, but even to ruin and destroy the kingdom of Christ by more secret and subtle means, by kindling the flames of contention and sowing the seeds of discord and bitter enemy amongst the professors and seeing reformers themselves and seeming reformers themselves 
For when he could not prevail by the former means against the principal doctrines of faith, he bent his force against the holy discipline and outward regiment of the kingdom of Christ by those holy doctrines which should be conserved and true piety maintained amongst the saints and people of God. Among these contentions that divided the church were divisions, of course, between those who held to Anglican, Presbyterian, and congregational systems of church government. The Anglican system, which sought under false pretenses to really preserve the dignity, the power, and the jurisdiction of the papal church with all its courts and canons and ceremonies and levies and taxes and revenues, became the persecutor of their brethren. And even though great efforts were made to mediate the matter and bring relief to the others by men even like John Calvin, they couldn't prevail and the persecutions became violent. Believers persecuting fellow believers. That's what we're talking about here. The results of all this were troubling because when believers began to persecute fellow believers, religion, the Christian faith itself, was disgraced. The godly were grieved, afflicted, persecuted, exiled, and imprisoned, all in the name of Christ. Bradford says that this caused an increase in atheism and profaneness that was sweeping over the face of England. Preaching at the time on Zephaniah, excuse me, chapter 2, one Puritan pastor from this era said this, The Christian religion has been amongst us this 35 years, but the more it is published, the more it is contemned and reproached of many. Thus not profaneness nor wickedness, but religion itself is a byword, a mocking stock, and a matter of reproach. So that in England at this day, the man or woman that begins to profess religion, that is true Christianity, and to serve God must resolve with himself to sustain mockeries and injuries, even as though he lived amongst the enemies of the Christian religion. Now Perkins' testimony bears witness to the truth of Bradford's words. Bradford was writing this in 1630, about 10 years after uh, the sailing of the pilgrims in the Mayflower. But his history wasn't finished until much later. And so he went back and updated his work. And he adds where he said these things, astonishment that shortly after he wrote these things, about 10 years after they had left England, the strangle grip of the Church of England ended and true religious liberty was established in the land. He says, this is why we left, uh, to get this freedom. And here I am writing about it 10 years later. And as I'm writing about it, everything's changing. And liberty is coming to England itself. He says, full little did I think that the downfall of the bishops with their courts, canons and ceremonies, etc., had been so near when I first began these scribbled writings so that I should have lived to have seen or heard of the same. But it's the Lord's doing and ought to be marvelous in our eyes. So we see that though it was not the root and cause of the rise of this upstart colony, uh, 
the opposition of Satan to the gospel, coupled with their own commitment to serve God and to do so as a free people, played a part in it. But we're still not at the reason. We're still not at the root and cause. This is a, a factor, but it's not the heart of the matter. To find the root, you have to dig deeper. And when you do, you find this. Speaking of the planting and the survival of this very frail, weak colony in Massachusetts, Bradford says this. In this case, these poor people may say, among the thousands of Israel, when the Lord brought again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Psalm 126, verse 1. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we rejoice. Verse 3. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. They, uh, they went weeping and carried precious seed, but they shall return with joy and bring their sheaves. Verses 5 and 6. Do you not see, now see, the fruits of your labors, Bradford says. O oh, all you servants of the Lord that have suffered for his truth and have been faithful witnesses of the same, and you little handful amongst the rest, the least among the thousands of Israel, you have not only had a seed time, but many of you have seen the joyful harvest. Should you not then rejoice, yea, again and again rejoice and say, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power be to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Who has done it? Who? Even he that sits on the white horse, who is called faithful and true, and judges and fights righteously. Quoting Revelation 19. His garments are dipped in blood, and his name was called the word of God. For he shall rule them with a rod of iron. For it is he that treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. And he has upon his garments and upon his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So do you see now where Bradford is taking us? Do you see the root and the cause? You may not have realized it was being revealed to you when we were just reading it. But the root and cause of this venture Bradford says, was God. You want to know how this happened? It was God. It was his work. It was his grace. It was the things that he did to help establish this. This is the work of God. Bradford and the others with him were so thankful for the way that the Lord worked in them, increasing their faith and strengthening their resolve. How he worked around them by an ever-glorious providence, all around them, bringing rain when it was needed and dealing with the other aspects of their lives there. And how he worked through them to establish a place for the exercise of liberty and worship. Thanksgiving Day is just ahead. And while there's so much to be thankful for, we can't help but, I think, feel an undercurrent of uncertainty right now. It's just out there. And I think we all acknowledge it. 
I've heard recently some of the most positive voices, people who are usually upbeat about everything, express concern about the immediate future. And there's a good reason. But in those circumstances, beloved, it is always a good exercise to reflect on the Redeemer, on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When I was a little boy, my friends and I would dress up like soldiers. And soldiers are different kinds, depending on what we felt like. And we'd march around each other's backyards. Well, we'd march about with play guns and swords and all kinds of things. For one summer, I, a whole summer, I was a sergeant in a make-believe army that uh, fought many battles in the woods in the backyards around Collingswood where I lived. In reality, however, it was comical. Whether it's little boys marching around the yard or bigger boys today pretending to slay the enemy virtually, none of us were or are much of a threat to our imagined enemies. And it's much the same when empires and rulers puff themselves up and imagine themselves to be autonomous. When they see their leaders see themselves as despots who can defy God and man with their plans and with their strategies. It's just like little boys marching around the backyard and pretending to be soldiers. They're full of boast, full of bravery, because there's not anything real about it. Really, they can't stand before our king. Look at the Savior as, as he set forth here in the word, because that's what Bradford does. He says, when I turn the clock all the way back and I say, how did all this happen? How did we get here? I have to go all the way back to the fact, to that place where there was no hope at all. And see that everything that was done, God did. And so we look at the Savior as he set forth here in the word. And then tell me, and we'll do it quickly here, if you and I need to fear men. We need to be in dread of them. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 and down through verse 13, we read this. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me. I used to have a way of getting the attention of my children. When they were doing something they shouldn't be doing, and they were sort of, uh, you know, not thinking about what I was saying to them, I'd take them, my, hand, my hand and put it on their shoulder. And I would apply more and more pressure until they were... <laughs> then they would say, then they would start listening. Look at what is here. The Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand on me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. So while you're looking out there and you're thinking about all that's going on in the world around you, feel that hand on your shoulder that's saying to you, look to me, look to me. Let me be your fear and let me be your dread. 
Essentially, the prophet was saying, honor and glorify the Lord of hosts himself. Honor him as the king and protector of his people and believe in his power to save. Now, in Revelation 19, we're not going to get caught up in the eschatological significance of the passage at this time. Just focus for a moment on the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, because this is who he is. Yesterday, today, and forever. Because he is very God of very God. Verses 1 and 2, it says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. We're out of time here, but I'm going to have you do this. I want you to shout, Alleluia. And I want you to do it as loudly as you can, okay? Are you ready? One, two, three. Oh, that was great. That was terrific. But it's nothing compared to this. And what does it mean? It means praise Jehovah. Praise Jehovah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. It doesn't matter what men are doing. His judgments are the true judgments and the just judgments. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged the blood of his servants. Beloved, I'll just end with this because of our time. and I'll encourage you to go back and read Revelation 19 again. But you understand, don't you, that there's not an angel or a saint in heaven who's stressed out or anxious over the future. There's nobody up there before the throne of Christ going, I wonder what's going to happen here. I sure hope this is going to be okay for me and my children who haven't joined me yet. There's nothing like that going on. The reality that now and ever fills their view is that salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to Jehovah God. And that was the point of Bradford. He said, let's go all the way back and look at all this suffering, this persecution, this trial, this hardship. We'll go all the way back through it all because right now we're in this beautiful place. How did we get here? Did we do something? We couldn't do anything. It's God who did this for us. And it's God who has done all things for us. And we can be thankful that there is one crown that cannot be removed. And that's the crown that rests upon the head of our Savior, who rules over all. The Lord God omnipotent. Let's pray. Father, bless these, hearts, these thoughts to us. And Lord, may they lead us into a fresh spirit of thanksgiving as we enter this Thanksgiving week. Help us to keep our eyes not on men, but on the Savior. And Lord, rejoice in our King, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, both now and forever. We ask this blessing in his name. Amen.